the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. I think I've told you all the story about how I got my Browning 30 or I got a 270, a 270 rifle. Anybody know what that is? Huh? That's right. I'm going to tell that story again. <clears throat> or I might get Dorinda to tell it. She knows all my stories. If you don't remember, it wasn't long ago I told it, that, that uh, I, was, I knew my brother wanted a nice Browning rifle. We had been talking about it at work together and stuff back when we used to work together. And I got to thinking, I'd really like to do something nice for him. He's six years younger than me. I used to beat him up all the time, and I was a mean big brother, and, and I was feeling bad about the way I treated him growing up. So I came to Angie, and I said, Angie, I know this is a lot of money, but what do you think about us buying my brother Heath that rifle that he wants? Should, for no, no other reason just to say that I love you and I'm sorry about the past. <laughs> And it just touched her heart, and, and she pulled out that checkbook and wrote the check out, and I went up here and got him a brand-new rifle and brought it to his house and everything. And he called me that night, and he couldn't believe it. I'd left it out on the porch. He said, man, I can't take this. I said, sure you can. I just, I just want you to know, Heath, that you know, I love you, my brother, and I just wanted to do something good for you. He said, I, I don't know, man. I can't take this. I said, sure you can. Just let it go and receive. He said, all right, all right. But you know, I already saved up the money to get my, my rifle. Me and his wife, Mindy, we'd already saved the money to get mine. So, and I was talking to Mindy, and since I already have one now, and you don't, I was thinking about we were going to use that money and buy you one so we can have matching rifles. Now, who was I to rob this man of the joy of giving like that? I mean, I'd just been telling him to learn how to receive, so I had to, you know, show him how to do it. And so he bought me a matching rifle. And so we both ended up with Browning automatic rifles, and our wives are still scratching their head trying to figure out how that happened. How... And they don't know if it was legitimate or we was playing them. But... but that's not really the rifle story that I wanted to tell tonight. There's another rifle story about my brother. You see, my dad passed away a couple years ago, and he had kind of like the family heirloom rifle. He had a Browning rifle that was his dad's rifle. And it was a real nice one and stuff. It had a nice scope on it. He had some other guns and stuff. When he passed away, my stepmother asked us to, the two boys to come over there, and, and we could split up his rifles, you know. So we went over there, and we looked at We got all the guns out, about 10 or 12 of them, and we was looking at them. And I said, Heath, I'm just going to be honest with you, man. The only real gun in that collection that's worth having is that Browning 30 alt 6 He said, yeah, the rest of them are okay, but, you know, not really anything. I said, so it really comes down to who picks first. <laughs> he said, i tell you what, guy. He said, you can go ahead and have that rifle. I said, no, I, I wouldn't feel right about that. Let's flip for it. 
He said, okay. So we flipped. He said heads. It was heads. All right, you can get it. You get to pick first. And I was like, you know, because this is an $800 rifle, you know, a family heirloom. And so he goes, all right. And he goes and picks a shotgun out. And so I know he purposely didn't pick the rifle, so it kind of throws me in a position here. So against my better judgment, I picked a shotgun too. And so he picks another shotgun, and this goes on until, I'll tell you later, the rest hide in. But this rifle story is better than the other one, if you can believe it or not. Like I said, we're in a series called Soul Winners. Tonight, we're going to be in part three called The Best Deal Ever. Where's my Joe at? Joe usually passes out my flyers for me. You got anybody? You take some. Cody Joe takes some. These are what? Our uh, Salvation Cliff Notes. They're always in the back. There's a whole bin full of those. And if we memorize these scriptures and understand the principles, then we'll, we'll be soul winners. There won't be no question about it. We'll understand everything that there is to know about soul winning pretty much. Except for the hands-on experience. Cody, Cody's a lot faster than you, Joe. <clears throat> okay. So if you see on there, the first caption reads, God loves you, right? That was the first week that we discussed in some detail how much God loves us. The next caption says, you ain't so lovable. And so two weeks ago, we talked in some detail about how unlovable we really are and how we're, uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standards and such. And we talked about all that. <clears throat> so tonight's part three, the best deal ever. And what does it say, the third header there? God's offer. So that gives you a clue that the offer is what? The best deal ever. Turn to Romans 5.8. That was a scripture we went to two weeks ago. But this week we're going to go to revisit some of those scriptures and we're going to go in a little bit greater detail and I'm going to try to slow down long enough to teach instead of preach good luck with that they're saying <clears throat> last week we wrote uh, two weeks ago we read Romans 5 8 says but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us now, that's one of the scriptures you need to memorize right there. People, you get them lost, and then you tell them, hey, but God loves you so much that while you were still hating on him and using his name as a cuss word, he died for you. 
that shows his love. That demonstrates his love. It says he demonstrated his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But let's go on. Verse 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. How are we justified? Through his blood. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Say reconciled. To God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved. Say saved. By his life. You've heard that term saved, right? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Reconciliation, reconciled, that means setting your books in order. That means if there was something between us, there's nothing between us anymore. Me and you are good. And I wanted tonight to take a moment to talk about some of these churchy, Christianese words that you probably don't hear in everyday life, but you see them in the Bible, and you'll hear it preached about stuff. And I know I went for years and years hearing some of these words, and they were just big words to me, and I just, over time, began to kind of get a gist of what they meant, but I really didn't understand what the words were until I started searching them out. So, for example, what is God's wrath? You kind of picture that as his anger, that's the way I pictured it. But I looked it up in International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and it says God's divine wrath is to be regarded as the natural expression of his divine nature, which is absolute holiness, manifesting itself against the willful, high-handed, deliberate, inexcusable sin and iniquity of mankind. So his wrath is what? It's an expression of his holiness against our sin. It says, God's wrath is always regarded in the Scripture as just, proper, and a natural expression of His holiness and righteousness, which must always, under all circumstances, at all costs, be maintained. It is therefore a righteous indignation and compatible with the holy and righteous nature of God. So you can say, well, why is God mad? Because God's holy and we're acting fools. And if a holy God saw the way we behave and there wasn't a wrath stirred up in him, then he wouldn't be that holy. It is the natural response to a sinful mankind for a holy God to store up wrath. He is angry about sin. God doesn't like it. Simple as that. The next word that we saw in our passage that we've been reconciled, reconciled to God, brought back together. That means a change from the state of enmity and fragmentation to one of harmony and fellowship. See, our relationship with God's been fragmented by all the dumb stuff that we're doing. Sin separates. Sin causes death, and God is life. And so if life and death are heading in, they're heading in opposite directions. So your sin is fragmentizing your relationship and bringing enmity against God in your life. And then the other word we talked about, saved. And in the Greek, that's the word sozo. S-O-Z-O. And it means to keep safe, sound, to rescue from danger or destruction, 
and also to deliver from the penalties of the messianic judgment. In other words, to deliver from God's wrath. So when you're saved, you're sozo. You're kept safe and sound from danger and destruction and from the wrath of God. And that's what happened when you gave your heart to Jesus. You came under his wings instead of under his foot. You came out from the wrath of God and came into the closeness and the love of God. That makes sense? In fact, if we were to read Romans 5.11, the last scripture we wrote, read there in the New Living Translation, I like how it says it. It says, in the King James, it says, God through Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. It says in the New Living, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. He's brought us into a friendship. If you look in Romans 8, he's, he's adopted us into his own family. He's, he's made us family. Jesus said, man, I'm not calling you my, my servants. I'm going to call you my friends because I'm, I, I don't tell my servants what I'm going to do, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to share my information with you. And now we're friends with God. Many times when I'm <clears throat> ministering salvation and talking about the need to be saved, the need to uh, turn your life around and ask God for forgiveness, they say, well, why don't God just forgive any, everybody? Why did he have to have his son die? You know, why is he so legalistic? Why, don't, why, don't, why can't he just say, I forgive you? <clears throat> and that's why I brought this tonight. I couldn't find anything that looks close to a gavel, so I brought this. <clears throat> this is my gavel. We're going to a courtroom of law tonight real quick. <laughs> Derek, could you, could you come, come to the bench? The judge has summoned you. Come to the bench, Derek. Yes. <clears throat> Son, I, I understand that you've been uh, caught speeding. Is that true? Yes. Are you guilty? I call you not guilty. You look like a good fellow to me. Go back and sit down. <clears throat> That's good, isn't it? Come here, Josh. Josh, I want you to come before the court. I understand that you've been uh, caught robbing some houses in your neighborhood. Are you guilty of this offense? You, you're guilty? Are you going to do it anymore? Well, I'm going to let you go. Not guilty. Big Joe, come before the court. <clears throat> Son, is something funny? You're, no, sir. You call me your honor. Your honor. <clears throat> now, we have eyewitnesses. We have video uh, evidence of the murder that you committed last week. Are you guilty of this, son? You did it? No. You don't know if you did it? You know what? I'm in a good mood since you don't know. I don't know either. Not guilty. You're released. <clears throat> so everybody's happy, right? Except, except the person that he killed was part of your family. 
the house that you robbed was her house. Now who, is everybody still happy? And if a judge is a, has morals and he's a righteous judge and a just judge and he has to judge according to truth, would the judge be happy being like that? It might feel good for a moment to say everybody can go, but pretty soon there's no deterrent for sin and we have decayed into a lawless society. Isn't that right? A just judge couldn't do that. They wouldn't be sitting on the bench next time election comes up <clears throat> because all the families that have been harmed by the criminals are upset because all the criminals are back on the streets. God cannot just forgive law. Does that help you understand? Just as it is not in God's nature to not be angry about sin, it's not in His nature just to let it go. You have to understand, God has never lied. God is completely holy. If he were to let down his guard for one minute and lie, or go back on his holiness and his justness, what would happen? I don't know. Maybe this whole universe would implode. I don't know. But he can't do it. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to not be just. It's who he is. God is a judge with a moral compass. He hates sin, and the sin debt had to be paid. The law says what? The wages of sin is death, and something has to die when we sin. Makes sin sound bad, doesn't it? Well, you ain't heard nothing yet. Leviticus 17.11, God's laying out the law, says, For the life of the body is in the blood. How many of you can live without your blood? None of you. The life of your body, the, the nutrients that you eat, the things that need to be dispersed throughout your body is in your blood. And he says, I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. What's he talking about? In the Old Testament, God gave us type shadows, things that we can learn from that were pointing to Jesus, like the law we talked about as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But also the Old Testament sacrifices where they killed the bulls and the, the goats and so forth. They would pour the blood on the mercy seat. That was the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the box with the, with the angels on top. It was called the mercy seat. And the high priest would go in once a year for, make atonement for the sins of the people and spill the blood of bulls and goats on to make atonement. Something had to die to spill that blood to make atonement for a covering over sin. Does that make sense? Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. When they, were, when they were putting the garments on the priest and stuff, I believe they were sprinkling them with blood and stuff. Blood, in God's eyes, 
covers, it purifies. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So how many got a bull or a goat that you can donate to the church? We'll be meeting up here Saturday. <coughs> Five cats, do I hear six? Do I hear... <coughs> got a cat, got, got cats, anybody got a hamster? Can I hear a hamster? hamster? A dog, dog? No. Okay, we're not doing that. Thank goodness, and I'm going to explain to you why. What does your next section in the, the cliff notes say? God's offer, right? Jesus told a parable <clears throat> about a man that owed the king millions of dollars in today's currency. And it was a debt he had... He had borrowed and borrowed, and he thought he could pay back, and at some point he's trying to borrow his way back out of debt or something. I don't know. This guy had gotten himself in deep. And the king finally said, man, this man owes me a lot of money. Bring him here. He said, bring his family, his children. We're throwing them in the debtor's prison. Now, I'm kind of just expounding on Jesus' parable. You can read it for yourself in Matthew. He said, we're going to throw him in debtor's prison until he's paid back all he owes me. But in reality, the guy owed so much that the guy could stay in prison 100,000 years and probably never pay back what he owed. And the guy comes before the king, and he falls down before the king and says, please have mercy on me. Give me some more time, and I will work and pay back everything that I owe you. And the king, out of the mercy of his heart, I don't know what he was thinking, he said, I'll tell you what, I just forgive you debt. He did not only just tell the guy, hey, go get out there and start working and make the money. He said, I'll tell you what, we're just going to raise the debt. He was like the judge and just was feeling good that day. Not going to make you pay. But then the guy that got forgiven the huge debt went out and found a guy that owed him a couple of bucks and grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, man, you better pay me everything you owe or I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. And the guy said, please, please have mercy on me. Just, you know, give me a little bit more time. He said, I'm not. And he threw him in debtor's prison. And the people went back and told the king, said, man, that guy that you just forgave that huge debt went and threw some other guy in the prison. Now, of course, what Jesus is trying to get across in the parable, the main point that he's trying to make is what? We've been forgiven a whole lot, more than we could ever pay. We've been, been forgiven so much that it's not only more than we can ever pay, our whole family's paying because of our sin. If we don't get our lives together, our whole family's going to have to pay. But he's saying, you know, you've been forgiven so much, can't you just forgive your brother? Can't you forgive your mother, your dad, for the way he treated you? Can't you, can't you let some of those things go? How ridiculous is it? And the king got mad, and then he went back and took his forgiveness back and threw the dude and his family into the debtor's prison because he wouldn't forgive others. But that's not the point that I wanted to make out of the story. The point that I wanted to make out of the story was simply this. Our debt is bigger than we can pay. And if God has offered us mercy, we better jump on it. We, we need to be so excited. How excited would you be if you owed a debt that your whole family was fixing to have to go to prison over? And, not, and you went before the judge, and he not only said, all right, I'll give you more time. He said, I'll just forgive the debt. And that's what God, through Jesus Christ, has done for us. And we act ho-hum like, oh, I deserve this. 
We don't. We act like we ain't gonna get excited. I can hear uh, somebody in the courtroom screaming now when they heard that kind of news. Contempt of court for all the screaming going on. Turn to Romans chapter three, verse twenty. If you hadn't noticed, just about everything that we preach on when we're talking about soul winning is out of the book of Romans. And if you really want to get serious about soul winning and understanding uh, how we got in this situation, how we're forgiven, what God did, what we're to do, and those things that go along with winning souls and understanding your redemption and the whole package, I would highly suggest that you study the book of Romans. Because that's where he, Paul lays it all out, how it happened. More, more than any other book in the Bible, the book of Romans. I would also suggest reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5 will help you greatly too. You might want to write those two down. But hopefully by now you found Romans 3. Last week, we read, two weeks ago, we read Romans 3, 20, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory standard. This week we're going to expound on that scripture. Let's, we're going to back up to verse 20. It says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. So even if you could obey the law, it still wouldn't make you right with God. All your good works. The law sh simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has showed us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Now, verse 22, you need to underline this and highlight it and write it on your, on your forehead. <laughs> we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. There it is, bottom line. How are you made right with God? We got a whole world out there thinking they got to be good enough to earn God's love and favor in heaven, right? But it says right here, just like I've, I always preach, but I always use it out of Galatians 3 where it says the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was teaching us we needed a Savior. But here it says we can't be justified by the works of the law. How are we made right? By faith. In the Lord Jesus. You're justified by faith. It was by faith that Abraham said this and that and did what God asked him to do. And he, it was counted unto him as righteousness because of his faith. Faith. God is looking for a people that will believe him. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. There's no qualifications if you're a Jew or a Greek or, or old or young. He's just looking for faith. And then it says, the scripture that we talked about two weeks ago, for everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standards. Yet God, in his grace, see grace and faith working together. Just like it says in Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's how you're saved. God, God's grace gave you, to, gave you something to believe in that would save you. Yet in, God, in His grace, 
freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty from our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. Another word for sacrifice there, if you're reading it in the New King James or the King James Version, is a big church word that we're going to talk about in a minute. It's called propitiation. Say propitiation. Propitiation. <clears throat> People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do at this present time. What does that mean? That means the people in the Old Testament are saved looking forward to Jesus Christ. We're saved looking back at the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? They believed by faith that the Messiah was coming, so they behaved accordingly. We see it, and we're living on the other side of it, and we have faith in what was done already. But both Old Testament and New Testament are saved the same way by faith. They're counted as righteous. Make sense? God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is what? Fair and just. I told you that already. That's the only way he can be. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they act right. Anybody paying attention? Anybody snoozing on me? And he makes... I wasn't looking at you, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to wake you up over there. I'm just, just <clears throat> and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We're called to be believers, not achievers. Well, we can achieve too. We want to achieve, but the way we're saved is by belief. Now, let's go back and talk about that word propitiation. In the New Living Translation, it says... A sacrifice. But it, that word propitiation means more. I was looking it up. I was trying to get my mind wrapped around what the, these scholars were saying. And I'm just going to lay a little bit out of it out to you. I, I don't know if I understand it all. But it began to make sense to me. And, it, and I think it will help you. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath, the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. So uh, the sacrifice appeased the wrath and reconciled us to God. We've already stated that in another scripture, right? But it goes on to say scholars believe the word propitiation in Paul's context points to Jesus being the mercy seat and also a scapegoat. Those are two words that are associated with propitiation. I'm like, the mercy seat? And a scapegoat. But remember what I said. That Ark of the Covenant. That had the, the golden lid. With the, uh, the flaming cherubim. With the wings folded in. And they were po wings pointed to each other. In the middle of that was called the mercy seat. That, was, that, was, that box was in the Holy of Holies. That was the place that was covered by curtains and covered by an outer room. And you couldn't go in there without dying in the Old Testament unless you had been sprinkled with the blood and you were purified according to the ceremonial purification rites of the time. 
You couldn't, there was only one person. It was, the, it was the high priest. Once a year he was allowed to go in the Holy of Holies where this Ark of the Covenant and this mercy seat because the presence of God would sit upon the top of that mercy seat. That's where the presence of God was. And that propitiation points to the mercy seat. And that's where they would bring the, the blood. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar to purify himself, the, the blood of a bull, so that he could come before that. And then he would bring the blood, uh, uh, he would bring two goats, and one goat would be sacrificed and his blood put on the altar for the, for, for uh, let me not, let me not say the wrong thing. Well, how'd I write it? The mercy seat is the altar where the blood is sprinkled. There's two goats. If you look in Le Leviticus chapter 16, they would bring two goats with them. And one goat would be sacrificed as an offering. And he would be the one whose blood was poured on the mercy seat. But the other goat, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat. And he would pronounce the sins of all the people of the nation. And he would place those sins on that scapegoat. That's where you get the word scapegoat. Somebody got accused of something they didn't do, right? This poor goat got all the sins of the whole nation placed on it, and there was a guy that was to take that goat out into the wilderness and let him go. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is God. He, Jesus is the altar. Jesus is the goat that was sacrificed. The blood was on the altar. And Jesus is the scapegoat who bore their sins and took them away as far as the east is from the west. So that propitiation word means more than, I mean, you dig into these things and you begin to see all of it, all this Old Testament stuff begins to paint a picture of what really happened. And, and Jesus is not just the mercy seat in that, that ark that was in a temple made with man's hands. He is the mercy seat that's in the heavens, the glory, the, the heavens in the third heaven where God reigns and the temple that God made. And he is the only one able to go into that holy of holies. And he is not only the mercy seat and he's not only the goats and the sacrifice and the, it's his blood, but he is the high priest himself that is able to walk into the holy of holies. He doesn't need any help in any of this. And that is why we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one else qualifies. When they was in Revelations, they, were, they had the book, and they said nobody can open the seals. They said, oh, we got one that can open it. The lamb slain from the foundations of the world. He is worthy to open the seals. He is worthy. He is the only sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And He was worthy to go into the Holy of Holies for us and do the whole, whole picture that the Old Testament painted. He fulfilled by Himself. He is the God that needed, He is the God that wanted the reconciliation and he is the man that provided it. 
And because he could find no greater person to swear by, he swore by himself. And the covenant in which we stand is not between us and him, it's between him and the Father. And neither one of them can lie, neither one of them can take it back, neither one of them can break the covenant. So it's an everlasting covenant. And he's not like one of these Hebrews talks about the priest that they had. They would die. Somebody else would have to take their place. They'd have to keep coming in there every year with the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus is an everlasting high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for the saints. And for once and for all, he brought the blood that was able to cleanse us forever. And he'll never have to be on the cross again. He'll never have to make the sacrifice. It was once and done. The things of the Old Testament were just a shadow of the things to come. The real glory. The real thing that happened in the real heaven. It was just a weak painting that God pointed us towards Jesus with. Good thing y'all not sitting over there. <laughs> now we've already established our sinfulness in part two of this series and everybody's debt has to be paid because God's going to make sure every debt is paid and all the books are reconciled so you're either going to have to pay your sin debt or you're going to have to trust that Jesus paid your sin debt and that's it He's the substitutionary atonement. It's either you or he's subbing for you. Only one qualifies and he tasted death for every man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, we're made right with God. And I try to tell those guys down at Soto County Jail, I try to tell them, guys, I know you're wearing those yellow jumpsuits on the outside, but I'm telling you, you can be free on the inside here tonight. That's why we've been singing songs about freedom I sing songs about freedom in there all the time. And they're like, the joy rises up on them. I said, some of you were bigger slaves on the outside than you are in here because you found Christ in here and you have peace. <clears throat> and I tell them, what if I told you that the governor was coming in here tonight and he was going to write you a pardon and hand it to you and you could go free? Damn, boy, they get excited about that. Yeah, man, I'd love that. They get all excited. And I say, well, I'm telling you that Jesus has already written you a pardon. That you can be free on the inside. You can have eternal life. You can be free from your sin debt, free from all the guilt, free from all the darkness, free from the slavery to sin, to the things of the... the you can be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You can be translated from your situation. 
God has written you a pardon in his own blood. And I was thinking, that sounds good to those guys sitting down at the jailhouse. I wonder how that good that would sound to those sitting on death row. Those guys got a few days left maybe. And I'm telling them about a pardon. I think they'd get excited about that. Then I got to thinking, what if they was on a conveyor belt? And hell was just right over there. And this conveyor belt's just moving them on down the line, and it's getting hotter. <laughs> they can smell the sulfur burning. And they can hear the screams. And they're getting right up to the edge. And somebody offers them a pardon and cu cuts that conveyor belt off. You think they'd be excited? Well, there's a whole world full of people out there right now that's on that conveyor belt. In fact, every person that hadn't received their pardon is on that conveyor belt. We don't know how close they are to the edge. But it could be any minute. And we know we have the pardon. We're the sole winners. And we need a sense of urgency with this message that we have. Because some of them are slipping off into hell for all of eternity. <clears throat> you know, I tell the kids, when I used to preach in the, well, I still do sometimes, talk to the little kids. I tell them the same principles. I just tell them about Jesus. I said, you know, you ever need a whooping? You ever get a big whooping? Then they told me about all your parents. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> and they'll say, yeah, yeah. I said, what if, what if somebody came and says, don't give them a whooping. I'll take the whooping from them if they'll ask me. They said, well, I'll ask them. You know, <laughs> I'll let them get my whooping for me. And that's all Jesus did. He came and he took our whooping. He took the, the penalty we deserved so that we could go free. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of eternal life. Now it's free to us. But I was thinking about that parable that Jesus told. He said the guy owed a debt that he couldn't pay, but he just forgave him. Well, it was easy for the guy that got forgiven. He was celebrating. But for the king, that money was still owed to him. He had to incur the cost, didn't he? So it, it wasn't free for the one who does the forgiving. It was free for the debtor. And it's not free to God. He incurred, Jesus incurred our cost. He paid our penalty. He bore our shame. Our sickness, our disease, the sin of all mankind, so that we might be forgiven, that we might be pardoned, that we could go free, so that we might live. He bore the price. So, I picked a shotgun, Heath picked a shotgun. Towards the end there, they're getting down to the last few, and Neither one of us had picked that Browning rifle yet. And I was 
sure hoping that the cards worked out so that I was kind of got last pick, you know. <laughs> got down to a cheesy little old twenty two rifle or something and got down to two things left. And it was my brother's pick. And I said, Oh no, he's got it. It was it was a it wasn't even a real gun, it was a replica. And it was all beat up and bent over the top of a door somewhere, just as a you know, showpiece, deco gun. It wasn't even a real gun and, and, and my dad's Browning thirty out six family heirloom. And it's my brother's pick, the last two. He said, I'll take this little old thing and he took the, the replica. And I said, yes. <laughs> he wasn't going to let me not leave with that gun. And that's the way God's heart is. You know, I've been a wheeler dealer all my life. I've been every pawn shop in Memphis a hundred times. Growing up, that's all I knew. I've I dumpster dive, I do anything to find a good piece of wood or a shelf to put some of my other trinkets or that I'd found on the side of the road. I mean, I just all my life I've been a wheeler and a dealer, and I've seen some great deals. And Heath choosing that rusty replica over my dad's rifle and letting me have it, that was a super deal. Meeting my wife and having her love me like she does, I don't deserve. Probably one of the best deals I ever got right there. But I ain't never seen no deal like God offers everybody. I ain't never seen God's righteousness for my unrighteousness. That's a good deal. <laughs> His heaven for my hell. His eternal life for my sorry, no good existence. His light for my darkness. His love for my hate. The Son of God for the Son of hell. That's a good deal. It's a good deal. And if you present it to people in the right way, there ain't no way in the world they're going to reject it. Unless they just... Unless they love their sin so much that they don't want to hear it. But you ain't going to get to tell them all this unless something is already in their heart to hear it. We're going to close with Isaiah 53, 10. <clears throat> you want to turn there? Isaiah 53. We really should read the whole thing, but we're just going to start for time's sake in verse 10. This is where it says that he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes we were healed. This is before Jesus was born on the earth. You realize that. But it's talking about the suffering Messiah. That's why I don't understand how the Jews don't believe that the Messiah has come and they read Isaiah 53. If you read Isaiah 53, 
You couldn't paint a more beautiful picture of Jesus. But they still reject him as their Messiah because their eyes are blinded. But that's not my point. Isaiah 53.10 says, But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. What does it say in the King James? Anybody got a King James? What was it? What, what does it say to start off verse 10? 10. That's good, that's good. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now I want you to understand, if you go back here, it's clearly talking about Jesus. And it pleased God to bruise his own son. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. The wrath will be satisfied. It pleased God that his wrath was finally going to be satisfied and that because of him, many people would live in eternity for all of eternity with them. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposes himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many, and he interceded for rebels, which we all have that rebellious nature. We're born with it. And he interceded for us. And it pleased God to finally just be done with this matter, to put sin under, to put death under. To give Jesus the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And that all who would call upon his name can be saved. And it is finished. And he is resurrected. And the only thing between you and freedom, the only thing between you and reconciliation, is your propitiation. It's your trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Got another story, but I'm not telling it. I'm going to close. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.